Thank you, Pastor, for that uh, kind introduction. I want to thank Pastor Harold, as well as the elders and uh, pastors here at Christ Central for this very warm opportunity, warm welcome and opportunity to come and bring you God's word. It gives me great delight to do so. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you uh, to turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm not sure how many people carry Bibles anymore, so would you double click uh, to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Listen carefully, uh, for this is the word of the Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered there so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We believe that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We believe that you can speak to us through it. We believe that our lives will change as a result of encountering it. We believe because Jesus is the word, but help our unbelief. Would you now bless us as we submit ourselves to you? Holy Spirit, come now and speak through your word, your trust worthy word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Spoken 65 years ago, these were the pregnant words that ignited the hearts and minds of many, longing for a new era, a new era of peace regardless of the color of their skin. Here, near the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, a man that was formerly paralyzed got up from his mat and actually began to walk. And while Mark doesn't give us the words he might have spoke, perhaps they went something like this, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Indeed, he was free, wasn't he? Free from the shackles of his physical torment. Free from the bondage of his paralyzed life. Free because he came face to face with Jesus and his life would never be the same again. 
For in Jesus, the paralytic came face to face with the kingdom of God. The king had finally come. And in this seemingly insignificant story, a story many of us perhaps have read, yet another miracle story, right? Receiving healing from Jesus, we are introduced to the reality, friends, to the reality that for many of us who so often feel paralyzed by our own sin and the sin all around us, we are reminded again that Jesus is king. Did you hear that? Jesus is king, not only over the life of this paralyzed man, but king over your life, king, and he has come to usher in a new kingdom for those who believe and trust and follow this king, because this king wants to take you from bondage to blessing, and because of the amazing grace of God, did you hear that? Because of the amazing grace of God in Christ, we can also demonstrate extraordinary faith because of this amazing grace. Amazing grace that leads to extraordinary faith. And that's what I want to do, is unpack this reality. This reality of amazing grace that motivates us, inspires us in this often paralyzed life in which we live, motivates us to demonstrate extraordinary faith. And so what I want to do is unpack this story of amazing grace and extraordinary faith by looking at this amazing story that, that happens through the supporting cast. Here's a story, it's a narrative, and most narratives have a protagonist, an antagonist, or a main character, supporting character, etc. And here the main character again is Jesus, coming face to face with this paralytic. But what's interesting is Mark records for us a supporting cast watching the scene unfold. Whenever we have details like that in the scriptures, we have to pay attention. Because Jesus could have just told the story through the perspective of the paralytic or through the perspective of Jesus. But he includes a supporting cast. These Pharisees, right, who are present, scheming, <laughs> scheming to get at Jesus, and these four friends, Little details that oftentimes go unnoticed in our reading of Scripture and in our interpretation of Scripture, but they're there for a reason to teach us something. So we want to look at the scene unfold through the perspective of the Pharisees, because what you're going to discover by looking at the Pharisees and how they look at the scene unfold, you're going to learn about amazing grace. And then we're going to look at the scene unfold through the perspective of the friends, these four friends. I call them the mat men, right? The four friends who bring their friend on a mat, the mat man, through their perspective and learn about faith. So that's our outline for today. Grace and faith through the perspective of the Pharisees and the friends. Does that seem reasonable? Just two points. I'm sure Pastor Harold usually gives three or four. I'm only going to give you two. All right, so let's take a look at that. Pharisees and friends. What can we learn about amazing grace? by observing the Pharisees as they watched this healing unfold before their eyes. Well, the first thing we learn immediately is that this interaction, this interaction between Jesus and their paralytic in the midst of the Pharisees is more than just a display of mercy to a man in need. It is that, no doubt. It is a display of mercy to, mercy to a man in physical need. 
He was a paralytic. He's a man that's been paralyzed. But we know it's more than that. We know that Jesus came to, from heaven to earth for a reason. Not just, to, not just to heal, but to do something much more profound for you and for me. You see, God had a plan from all eternity. Did you hear that? God actually had a plan from eternity to take you and me who believe in Jesus from bondage to blessing, just like this paralyzed man. Did you know that you're in this story? By the way, that's, you're not Jesus, obviously. You might be a Pharisee. We can talk about that. You might be the friends. We'll talk about that. But the primary person you need to interact with, think about, reflect upon, and un- frankly, connect with is actually the paralytic. Jesus came from all eternity to save his children, not only who are paralyzed physically, but more important, those who are paralyzed spiritually. We know this because Jesus says two things. Jesus makes two statements. This this is four, I'm sorry. Jesus says two things that were very shocking and actually help us understand something about his grace. Something that no one expected him, no one expected him to say. First of all, when he sees the faith of the paralytic and his friends, in verse 5, he says this, son, your sins are forgiven. That's the phrase. Your sins are forgiven. That's actually very shocking, as Alex will explain. And then secondly, he, sa- he calls himself a title before he heals the man. He calls himself the son of man, okay? So your sins are forgiven, the son of man. What does that mean? Let's take a look. First, your sins are forgiveness. Forgiveness? That's odd. Actually, the Pharisees help us understand. You see, the Pharisees watch this, uh, this scene unfold, and they listen to Jesus. The first thing out of his mouth, as the paralytic is lowered from the roof, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, your sins are forgiven. And immediately, what do the Pharisees say? In verse 7, who can forgive sins but God alone. Did you know here that the Pharisees are actually accurate? The Pharisees weren't always wrong. I know they they get painted a bad picture, and rightfully so. In the New Testament, the Pharisees are often the bad guys, the guys with the black hat that Jesus comes to rescue his people. But here, the Pharisees, as careful students of the Old Testament in their day, which would have been the Hebrew Bible, because the New Testament was not recorded yet, As careful students of the Old Testament, they correctly state that only God can forgive sins. Did you know that the Messiah who's prophesied in the Old Testament, that the Messiah never forgave sins, or at least forgiveness of sins was never attributed to the Messiah. If you study the Old Testament, the Messiah would do many things for the people of Israel, for his people. The Messiah would exterminate the godless in Israel. The Messiah would crush demonic power. The Messiah would protect his people from the reign of sin. But forgiveness of sins was never attributed to the Messiah that was prophesied. And so in their minds, the Pharisees had to make a choice. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, what are they actually thinking? Wait a minute. Is he actually saying what I think he's saying? This carpenter's son from Nazareth is saying that he's God. Blasphemy. 
How dare he? You see, so in their minds, they have to make a decision. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, what is he saying about himself? He's saying, I'm God and I've come. So either Jesus is the Lord God himself or he's a liar and a lunatic. Do you see? You see what's happening here? That's why this is so shocking. They had to make a decision in their minds. Either Jesus is God, come in the flesh, or he's a liar and a lunatic. Friends, Jesus' pronouncement here of forgiveness is even much more shocking because think about it, it seems so inappropriate for the situation, right? Almost irrelevant. You could almost imagine the frustration of some of the disciples when this hole is cut through the roof, which is shocking enough, a paralytic is lowered to the ground, again, shocking, and the first thing Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. The disciples are probably thinking to themselves, "Uh, Jesus, that's not why he's here. He's here to receive healing. Why are you pronouncing forgiveness to him? It seems so obvious to those sitting around that day that the paralytic had been dropped at his feet for physical healing. So when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, what is Jesus declaring? Friends, he's stating something profound that we need to be reminded of again. He's pronouncing amazing grace. He's saying that God is now fulfilling his promise. And I am that God who has come to rescue you from your paralyzed life. You see, this paralyzed man was a symbol, this physical paralyzed man was a symbol of the paralysis of sin and death for all of humanity. There is a day coming He said, where the final once-for-all sacrifice will bring everlasting forgiveness of sins. You see, remember up to this point, for Israel to get forgiveness of sins, they had to get the blood of bulls and goats sacrificed for them on the Day of Atonement once per year where the high priest would enter into the temple, blood would be spilled, and there would be forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying, now I'm coming and the final once-for-all sacrifice will be made. Yes, I can heal him. Don't worry, disciples, I'll heal him. But you need to know that I came to heal you from something much more serious and severe than paralysis of the body. You see, you have a problem. You all in this room not only 2,000 years ago in Palestine, but you all of us here in Fullerton. You have a problem that was handed down to you from your first parents, Adam and Eve. And though they were created in original righteousness and holiness and knowledge, they rebelled against me and fell from their original state. And now their sin is your sin. And outside of me, you deserve judgment and death. But guess what, friends? Amazing grace, I've come. I've come to save you from your sin that separates from you, from me. I've come to give you a new heart. I've come to take care of sin once for all. I've come to take you from bondage to blessing. 
This is what Jesus means. This is what all that's wrapped up in this simple phrase, your sins are forgiven. Here, for the very first time in his public ministry, Jesus is making the earth-shattering announcement that the kingdom of God had finally arrived. The long-awaited blessing, for God himself has come. Friends, listen. God himself has come to enter into your time, into your space, into your history to save you from your paralysis, the paralysis of sin that leads to death. Friends, death is the greatest paralysis of all. Jesus has come to take us from bondage to blessing, from death to life, to heal us from the inner paralysis of sin that leads to grace. And how does he do that ultimately? He becomes the paralyzed man on the cross. And friends, for three days, he is paralyzed, taking upon himself your sin, my sin, the sins of the world. Friends, Jesus is the paralyzed man so that we would be free. Friends, this is grace. This is the essence of the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come for us to forgive us and save us from death in the person and worker, in the person and work of this simple carpenter's son from Nazareth. You see, friends, as you think about your life and oftentimes the darkness and difficulties that you face, And perhaps there's some of you here this morning that are struggling with the realities of your own sin and the sins of those around you and the sin of this present evil age. You need to be reminded again, friends of the amazing grace of God that has freed you, freed you from the bondage of your own sin and the sin of those around you. But that's just the first thing we learn about grace through this statement, your your sins are forgiven. He says more, which is amazing as well. He says about himself, he says, I am the son of man. Why is this so significant? Jesus states the reason why he has the authority and the power to not only forgive sins, but also heal the man. The Pharisees help us, right? The Pharisees helped us understand the significance of forgiveness, the statement of forgiveness. The Pharisees now help us understand the significance of this title. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus responds to what they were thinking in their hearts. The Pharisees were probably thinking to themselves, not only is this guy blaspheming by calling himself God, but he's also frivolous. Anyone can say, your sins are forgiven, Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. But if he's really God, heal this guy then. Prove it. Jesus responds to the scribes. Jesus responds to to what the Pharisees were thinking by demonstrating actually who he is. He's not just a God who speaks grace, but a God who displays grace. With this simple self-designation, Jesus reveals that he alone has the authority and the power 
the authority, and the power to forgive sins and heal the body. Jesus is no ordinary prophet or teacher, guru or sage. He is God. And God is not only powerful, he is full of grace. You see, the Pharisees knew this title very well. They paid attention in Sabbath school when they were young. This was a very special term that was recorded in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, in one of his most famous visions, in one of his famous prophecies, Daniel says this in Daniel chapter 7. Quote, There before me was one like a son of man, coming in the clouds to bring his kingdom. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. You see, friends, this was no ordinary prophecy for these Pharisees. For these Pharisees, this was one of the clearest pictures of the almighty King of kings and Lord of lords that they worshipped. This was the all-powerful, all-knowing God who threw out the sun and stars with his hands. And much to their shock and dismay, this carpenter's son was using the special title reserved only for God for himself. Shocking. Blasphemous. Here in the book of Mark, it's used for the very first time this self-designation by Jesus. It was actually one of his favorite self-designations. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man more than any other title in the book of Mark. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that God described in Daniel chapter 7, that God that you've been waiting for, the God that's all-knowing, all-powerful, guess what? I am he. I am. I am the son of man who has all power, all dominion, and yet, as we learn later in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even though I have all this glory, all this power, all this dominion that is rightfully mine, as a son of man, I came not to be served, though I rightfully deserve it, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Wonder of wonders that the amazing God of the universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords, would come to serve us by laying down his life. This is God himself come in the flesh for you and for me. God himself is saying this to you. I care about you so much that I will give up my throne. And though you don't deserve this, I will enter into your life so that you may receive freedom from the bondage of sinful spiritual paralysis. How? By taking your sin, putting it upon myself on the cross, and I will nail your sins to the cross. Friends, beloved of God, this story is about you and me 
enslaved by the ravages of sin, shackled in guilt and condemnation, imprisoned by the sin and shame that curses both the soul and the body. By calling himself the son of man and actually healing the paralytic, Jesus is proclaiming grace. This is amazing grace. The grace of God himself coming, though he did not need to, to save us from our sin and misery. And so after rebuking the Pharisees, Jesus turns to the paralytic and says, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And this is what we read in verse 12, so simple and yet profound. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Friends, are you amazed? Are you astonished when you think about what's happened in your life? How God has taken you from bondage to blessing, from darkness to light, from death to life. Friends, this is amazing grace that has healed you for eternity. Friends, you are free, free at last. Thank God with me that you are free at last. So that's what we learn from the Pharisees, right? That's the first group in this story that we can learn about grace. Now let's take a look at the friends and what they can teach us about extraordinary faith. What can we learn about faith from them? Talk about mission impossible. Upon hearing that Jesus was in town and was miraculously healing many with sickness and disease, these four faithful friends decide to take their paralytic friend to the feet of Jesus for healing. Unfortunately, the place was packed. This is understandable. Jesus was amazing. Many, so many with his teaching and his healing. But these friends had a mission to accomplish for the sake of their one friend in need. Verses three and four give us a, a simple picture of what happened. But what I want to do is, is examine it a little bit closer. First of all, as they made their way to Jesus, they go to their friend who's been paralyzed, and they see, friend, Jesus is in town. We want to take you to Jesus. We want to take you to the feet of Jesus. And they go to the house where Jesus is teaching, but as they make their way and finally arrive, they didn't expect to find so many obstacles. So what I want to do is count some of these obstacles. I, I count at least four, all right? Four obstacles. Obstacle number one, the crowd, right? It was impossible to, to get to Jesus. Frankly, I think it was impossible to even see Jesus. They couldn't even get to the front door of the house. The crowd was so big, so big that it had spilled out of the house into the courtyard, so they couldn't even enter the front gate of the house. So what do they do? Should they go home? I'm sorry, friend, we tried. Maybe we'll catch Jesus later when he comes back. No. They go to the side of the house, of course, right? They go to the side of the house where they encounter obstacle number two, the stairs. Again, most Palestinian homes were kind of like a square or a rectangle made out of clay, and they had stairwells on the side of the house outside to get to the roof, because oftentimes in summer, when it got hot, at sundown and in the evening, the family would go up to the roof to cool down. 
So that's where they encounter obstacle number two. Again, I've never tried this, but I can imagine carrying a man up the stairs on a flimsy, it's called a mat here, probably a blanket of some sort. Carrying a man up the stairs is not easy. And yet somehow they make it up. And that's when they get to obstacle number three. How are they going to get to Jesus from the, from the, from the roof? Typical roofs in Palestine at the time were made with a thick layer of clay that was packed by a stone roller, supported by mats of branches across wooden beams. Again, I've never done this, but it's not hard to imagine that digging through a clay roof, a dry clay roof, to make a hole big enough to lower a man was probably extremely difficult and challenging without the power tools that we have. And yet somehow with their tenacity, with their never give up attitude and action, they somehow make a hole in the roof large enough to lower their friend. And that's why they have obstacle number four. They haven't given up yet, friends. How are they gonna lower him down? Somehow, I don't know, maybe with some rope, some more sheets, they actually lower their friends to the feet of Jesus. Amazing faith. Extraordinary faith. Think about that. And so there's Jesus teaching. Little by little, some crumbs start to fall off the roof. Then the crumbs become rocks. Then the rocks become bigger, right? By now, Jesus has stopped his teaching. By now, The owner of the house is cursing and yelling, right? Imagine the scene, the hubbub, the commotion. And in the midst of that, a hole is made in the roof. Jesus looks up and notices that a group of men are digging a hole through the roof and trying to lower a paralytic. Crazy. And as the crowd looked on with anticipation, a paralytic is slowly lowered to the floor at the feet of Jesus. Jesus looks with compassion upon the paralytic now at his feet. And he looks up at the roof at these four friends who are looking down going, what faith. Mark doesn't record if the paralytic spoke. Mark doesn't record whether these friends spoke. Friends, to Jesus it didn't matter. They didn't speak. They didn't talk. They just trusted. And the simple act of trust, the simple act of faith, blessed and touched the very heart of God. That the Son of Man, the glorious King of Kings, would be blessed by a simple act of trusting Him. Jesus saw their faith. Look at that carefully in verse five. Jesus saw their faith. And the first thing that he does is he blesses by forgiving him of his sins. And the second thing that he does is he heals his body, transforming his life. Amazing that Jesus would give his pardon and grant his power just because of this simple act of faith. There's a lot we can learn about faith from the story, isn't there? Let me just quickly highlight five things about faith we can learn. 
from these friends and from this story. First, isn't it interesting that it's faith alone in Christ alone that brings blessing? Did you see that? It's faith alone in Christ alone that yielded blessing. That's the equation. Faith and Christ equals blessing. Jesus didn't look and say, wow, you guys work so hard. Look at you, you never gave up. You know what, I'm gonna bless your effort. I'm gonna bless your work. Jesus saw their faith and said, your sins are forgiven. It's faith alone in Christ alone that yields blessing. Secondly, faith is based on knowledge. Think about it. For the paralytic and his friends, they knew that only Jesus can provide healing. It's based on the objective reality of who Jesus is and what he can do. It was a faith outside of themselves. Furthermore, Jesus himself grounds his blessing in the truth and reality, the objective reality that he is the son of man, that he is God. Faith is based on knowledge, friends. It's not wishful thinking like that little train, right? I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's not faith. That's wishful thinking. Faith is believing in the power of somebody else in the power of Jesus. So faith is based on knowledge. The third thing we learn, faith fuels persistence, doesn't it? Though they were faced with many obstacles, these friends passionately and tenaciously didn't give up. Friends, it's faith in Christ that encourages us and inspires us to keep going no matter how hard, no matter how difficult your circumstances may be even today. Keep going because your God can bless you. It may not be according to your time, but God can bless if you believe. Faith fuels persistence. Don't give up. Fourth, faith is action, isn't it? It's one thing to believe that Jesus can heal, and it's quite another thing to actively go after it. You can't just sit and just believe it. You have to act upon it. Faith moves from the head, from knowledge, to the heart, to conviction, to the hands, to actually seeking after it. And one of the things you do that, how do you do that? What you're doing right now, coming to church. That's a worshipful, faith-filled act because you believe that God will speak to you through the word. You believe that grace can come to you as you sit under the ministry of the word of God. That's action. So come to church, especially when it starts. You're welcome, Pastor Harold. So when church begins at the call to worship, come. Faith is action. It moves from the head, the heart, to the hands. Lastly, isn't it true that faith involves others? This paralytic couldn't have done it without his friends. He needed them. Friends, the Christian life is not a solitary journey between you and God. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a journey with others who are also bounded together, bonded together. We're all bonded together by the blood of Jesus as we are all united to him. We are now part of one body. Faith exists in community. 
Faith is amazing, isn't it? Faith alone in Christ alone yields blessing. Faith is based on knowledge. Faith fuels persistence. Faith is action. Faith involves others. Friends, the author of Hebrews makes this very simple yet profound statement. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. What does your faith look like today? Friends, one of the greatest gifts we can give to our family and friends who are lost, hurting, broken, and paralyzed by their sin, paralyzed by the sin of their world, is to bring them to the feet of Jesus. God is calling each and every one of us as we've been transformed by the amazing grace of God to demonstrate extraordinary faith through the simple act of taking them, your friends and your family, to the feet of Jesus. They need you to demonstrate the gift of kingdom faith that God gives to you so that you can pay it forward. Take them to the feet of Jesus so Jesus can heal and restore, renew and revive to wholeness, to take them from bondage to blessing. Friends, motivated by amazing grace, we too can demonstrate extraordinary faith. And let me close with this. All of us need to learn from the mango tree. The mango tree is an amazing creation of God. The mango tree oftentimes will break a limb. That small, seemingly insignificant limb may be broken by powerful wind or weather or by an animal that comes by and breaks off the limb. At first, when you look at that limb, it seems so insignificant to the whole tree. And yet, when that limb is broken, the entire tree notices, stops growing, and all of the nutrients and cells needed to grow that tree is, is diverted. And all the nutrients, the healing cells of that tree is now diverted all completely, 100% to that one seemingly insignificant little branch. And only when that little branch begins to grow again, only when that little branch that's broken begins to grow will the rest of the tree grow along with it. What an amazing picture of this blessed community, what we call the church of Jesus Christ. What would CCSC look like if every single one of you noticed the one broken limb stopped what you were doing and pooled all your efforts, all your resources, what would this church look like if all of you went to that one seemingly insignificant little branch and took them to the feet of Jesus? The amazing grace of God in Christ can unleash ordinary people like you and me to exhibit extraordinary faith as we take people to the feet of Jesus. Friends, from bondage to blessing, from death to life. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for teaching us this morning 
about grace and faith. Thank you for the breathtaking grace of the gospel. The breathtaking gospel that declares how much you love us in Jesus. The gospel that declares we are free to demonstrate faith. Now, Father, would you move us, inspire us, challenge us to demonstrate our reliance upon you as we bring others to the feet of Jesus. Help us to understand and display grace through faith. Lord, you know we are but ordinary people seeking to demonstrate extraordinary faith, but we cannot do this without your help. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come even now? Spirit, come now and help us so that we can display the kind of faith, hope, and love that you yourself have shown us in Jesus. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.